Pastor Brandon will be preaching from Acts 1, 1 through 11, uh, Pew Bible, page 909. <clears throat> In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is, not, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on him, looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Where would we be if you did not reveal yourself to us, if you were not a God who speaks? And thank you that every time this book is open before us, we have confidence that you are speaking because it is your very word. So, Lord, we pray uh, for the ability to hear you this morning, to see you with eyes of faith. We pray for our hearts to be transformed by your grace, by your word, that your spirit would bring it to bear on our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Steve mentioned uh, a minute ago we are starting a new preaching series through the book of Acts for the next several months, the Acts of the Apostles. That's the fifth book in the New Testament, uh, right after the four Gospels. If you have been with us for a little bit, you'll know that we spent the last fall, uh, right up to last Sunday, in the Gospels, looking specifically at select stories and paying attention to how Jesus loved the people that he interacted with, so that we would see that and, and understand that for our own lives as well. And of course, the Gospels are, are some of the most famous books in the New Testament. That's where we find the story of Jesus, right? Uh, the story of his miraculous birth, of his perfect sinless life, of his teaching and his miracles, of his trial, his crucifixion, uh, his uh, burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the uh, you know, in fact, all of that is so important that we don't just have one book telling that story in the New Testament. We have four books 
telling the story of Jesus. It is the cornerstone of our faith. And it's tempting to think that when you get to the conclusion of the Gospels, so concludes the story of Jesus. That, you know, he was here for 33 some years, he lived, died, was raised, ascended to heaven, and then you turn the page out of the Gospels and the story moves on to a new story, a new story of the church. And then you get the story of the church in the book of Acts and its birth and its growth and its ministry and struggles and spread. And of course, Acts does tell the story of the church. That's true. But that story is not so disconnected from the story of Jesus as we might be tempted to think. And that's what we see in the opening verses of this book, that what follows, what we're going to see throughout this winter and spring as we work our way through select passages from this book, is that the story of Jesus is still going on. It continues in the book of Acts. Jesus continues his work on earth by commissioning his church to bear witness to him and his kingdom among all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. The story of Jesus goes on. And that's what gives us context to understand the story of the church. And that's good news. That's good news for us, that Jesus is alive and he's still at work. That's the opening note of this book. That's good news any day, but it's especially good news as we enter into a season of transition as a church. While not just trying to maintain, but actually move forward in our vision to see Christ treasured above all things. It's good news that Jesus is alive and he's still at work. And so if you're not still there, I encourage you to to find your way again to Acts chapter 1. Verses 1 to 11. If you ever watch television shows where the story builds from week to week, then you're familiar with how every new episode begins. It starts with the recap of last week's episode, right? You know, previously on The Flash or, or whatever show you watch. And, and you need that recap because you need the context of what happened before in order to make sense of the story you're about to be told, right? That's how Luke starts the book of Acts, with this kind of previously in my last volume announcement. Uh, Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now, we know that Luke and Acts were written by the same author because both books are addressed to the same person, Theophilus, and the writing style is very similar and so on. And we were pretty sure that that Luke was that author uh, because as far back as you can get into church history, that's kind of been the consensus of the church, even into the early centuries. And so so Luke wrote this kind of two-volume book, and he starts volume two by reminding his readers that that this is not the beginning of the story. Something happened beforehand that you need to know. If you think about it, it's kind of similar to how Matthew begins his gospel. Uh, I don't know if you remember what Matthew does right at the beginning of his gospel. He starts with a genealogy, right? Which we kind of 
think of as dry, boring reading or whatever. But there's a reason he does that. He starts with a genealogy that stretches all the way back to the story of Genesis, to Abraham, then to God's promises to David, and so on. And, and it's Matthew's way of saying that the story you're about to read in the Gospels doesn't start here. It goes all the way back to that earlier story, God's creation and covenant promises that are now being fulfilled through Jesus. And so, in a very similar way, Luke starts the story of Acts uh, by showing us it's a continuation. It's an ongoing story. In fact, uh, some scholars and authors have suggested that the traditional title for the book, the Acts of the Apostles, doesn't really do justice to the emphasis of the book. Uh, John Stott suggested that a better title might be the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. Or Kent Hughes uh, proposed the, the acts of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit working through the church. Because Jesus is still the main character of this book. The apostles are not the heroes. This is Jesus' story ongoing through the Holy Spirit worked out through his church. Not that anybody would actually, you know, change the title. I'm not suggesting you scratch that out and write something else in. But it helps to think of the book in that way. And it's not just being nitpicky or nerdy. Uh, this is critical for understanding the context of Acts and the commission of the church, that, that there's an intentional continuity between Christ's work and the church's call. Is an intentional continuity. Another author writes that what the early church said and did was rooted in and connected to the activity in which the risen Jesus was involved. Uh, indeed, the point is that without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. That's the context. And so, as Luke draws on that link to the earlier gospel stories, uh, notice what he emphasizes in the opening lines, uh, verses kind of one through five, where he sets the context for us. First and foremost, he emphasizes that Christ is risen and reigning. Christ is risen and reigning. Verse three, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is alive. The story of Jesus doesn't end at the end of John 21. He's alive and reigning. He rose bodily from the grave. He conquered death and is right now at this very moment reigning from heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is alive and still at work. He's risen and reigning. He still rules the church as our abiding and living king. And, and his apostles were witnesses to that life, witnesses to that resurrection. They saw over the course of 40 days, Jesus demonstrate in numerous ways, and you can read the end of Luke or, or, or Matthew to kind of see what that looked like, proving to them that the man whom they saw crucified, the man whom the Roman officials pronounced dead, the man who was buried for three days in the ground, 
That man is more alive today than any of us are capable of imagining. Jesus is alive. And, and even though he did very much accomplish the work his father sent him to do, he finished his mission on earth to give his life as a ransom for many. He's still at work bringing that finished work to bear through the Holy Spirit throughout the world. And so Jesus is alive and still at work. He is risen and reigning. That's the first thing Luke emphasizes by way of remember this part so you understand what I'm about to tell you. Second, Luke emphasizes that before ascending to heaven, Jesus commissioned his apostles. The church has work to do. Middle of verse 2. He was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus planned for how his work would carry on after he returned to heaven. He set a plan in place. The beginning of his ministry, Mark tells us that he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So, so much of Jesus' earthly ministry was spent with these 12 apostles, these disciples, as he prepared and equipped them to carry on his work after his time on earth was complete. And in the book of Acts, it's go time. Like that time is now here. And so Luke starts by remembering there's this commission, right? Uh, and then the third thing that Luke reminds readers of is that Jesus promised to equip his church for the ministry that he sends them to do. He didn't just send them out in their own strength. Rather, verses 4 through 5 uh, reiterate what, what Luke said earlier in, in Luke 24, 49. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, from the promise, wait, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the apostles have a mission, the church has a mission, but it's not something they can accomplish on their own. And so Luke reiterates Jesus' promise that he was going to send his Spirit. And, and, and that's not just a promise that goes back to the Gospels. That promise goes all the way back to the Old Testament again. God's promise to pour His Spirit on His people, to renew His people and remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within them and cause them to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. And so Luke sets the context. He starts uh, with telling us that, that the story we're about to read is not a new story. It's the next chapter of an ongoing story of Jesus and his work. A story that pivots on Jesus and one in which he remains a central and active player. So he sets the context in verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 11 are kind of launch that new chapter, again by, by repeating some of what he said at the end of Luke, but, but zeroing in onto some details that he doesn't want us to miss, details that are going to set us up for what we'll see moving forward that help us clarify the church's purpose. And so uh, look at verses 6 through 11. And what's interesting, when you look at verse 6, 
is that we realize pretty quickly we're not the only ones tempted to think that, that because the story recorded in the Gospels is over, because Jesus finished the work the Father sent him to do, that, that his story is now done. We're not the only ones tempted to think that. Verse 6 brings us to Bethany, uh, where the disciples were gathered with Jesus just before his ascension. And look at what they ask him. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's a fair question. Uh, it, it shows that they clearly recognize who Jesus is and what he accomplished is directly connected to the promises of God in the Old Testament, that God would uh, restore, his, deliver his enemies and restore the glory to Israel. And you can see that in places like Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 60 and Jeremiah 23 and so on. So, so they get that, that who Jesus is and what he did, it's connected to those promises and and, and it helps to remember that, that for generations now, Israel's been occupied territory. So Rome has been oppressing and occupying God's land, God's people, and so on. And so it's not a bad question to ask that, well, well now that the Messiah is here and he's won, isn't it glory time? Isn't it glory time? Isn't the, word, isn't the story now over? It's a fair question. But it assumes a couple of things. Uh, first, it assumes that, that God's going to fulfill those promises in an exclusively nationalistic way, uh, when in fact, if you pay more careful attention to Isaiah and other books, he has in mind the renewal of all nations in a new earth, not just this little uh, zip code in the Middle East. And then second, and more significant to our context here, it assumes once again, that the story of Jesus is over. Like, it's finished, it's done, we're ready for the end to come. Will you restore the kingdom at this time? The apostles don't realize uh, that the story isn't over, that it's just now the next chapter, and one in which they will be called to play a major role. And, and that's what Jesus directs them to in verses 7 and 8. He doesn't answer their question, nor does he even correct them. He just kind of redirects. You know, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then instead, he focuses, on, focuses them on the main thing, on the mission he gives them, what we often call the Great Commission, the purpose of the church. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the church's purpose. Now, each gospel ends with some version of that charge, what we, again, call the Great Commission. Uh, it, it's our purpose. It's our charter. It's what Jesus sends his people into the earth to do. Every organization, uh, every group, every company, every business today has some sort of charter, right? Some statement of why they exist and what their purpose is. This is the church's charter. This is our mission. Uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, as it 
concludes each of the Gospels here in the book of Acts, it's the beginning. It's what sets the focus for the story that's to come. And we can summarize this charter, and that's what I want to do with the rest of our time here, to summarize this charter, uh, what it tells us about our purpose as God's church, with a series of M words. Wouldn't, it doesn't alliterate, it doesn't come from a preacher. So we've got four M words here to help us understand the charter uh, of the church. Our mission, our might, our mission field, and our motivation. So that's how we're going to summarize verse 8 here. First, our mission. What is the church's mission? It is to bear witness to Christ. That's the charge. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. So what does that mean? Well, for those of you who grew up going to church, uh, the phrase witnessing is often used as a shorthand for telling people about Jesus, for evangelism. And, and that's basically true. But the word comes from uh, the context of the law court, right? I mean, you've seen law and order or, or any number of, of the, or, or, or perhaps we've had to be involved in trials or sat on jury duty or whatever. We know how this works. When someone is on trial, the prosecutor and, and the defense both call witnesses to the stand and, and what do those witnesses do? They offer a testimony of what they saw or experienced uh, relative to the case being tried. To bear witness is to give a faithful account of what one has seen and heard. That's the job, to bear witness. Jesus chose his apostles to be witnesses of his resurrection and reign to give testimony to the watching world that Jesus is alive, that he's risen, and that he's the true Savior and King of the world. Uh, and that's a consistent theme throughout the book of Acts, this function, this purpose, this calling to bear witness. Uh, for instance, when the apostles select a replacement for Judas, his job is to, quote, become a witness to Jesus' resurrection. Or Peter uh, proclaiming in chapter 2, verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And again and again throughout the book, you see the people of God bearing witness to who Jesus is, giving a faithful account of what they've seen, heard, and experienced in the risen Christ. And so the essential mission of the apostles, and, and with them the church, is not to restore God's kingdom, as the apostles kind of first wondered. Uh, nor is it some of the other phrases that we often use. It's not to build God's kingdom or redeem the culture or join God in his mission of radical restoration. We hear those phrases a lot, but, but those are not the way Scripture describes our work, and that's because those are things only God can do. God's the redeemer. We bear witness to God and his redemption. We bear witness to the kingdom. We bear witness to Christ and his radical redemption. Witness to the power of God to save. He's the Savior. We're the witnesses. That's our charge. And when you look ahead and, and kind of take a peek at where Acts is going, 
and what the apostles actually talk about when they're bearing witness, you see there is a singular message, not what we do for God, but what he has done for us through his son. That's the message we bear witness to. Uh, The message is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. That's what we bear witness to. In fact, the language of preaching, proclamation, declaring, those verbs, again, fill the book. There is so much description, declaration of who Jesus is in this book. In fact, when Luke summarizes, when he's looking for a way to describe how the church is growing, how the mission's being accomplished, how it's unfolding, he uses this phrase to describe the effectiveness of the church's witness. He does it, says this, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, chapter 6, 7. But the word of God increased and multiplied, 1224. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, 1920. When Luke wants to summarize the growth of the church, he describes it as the multiplication of the message, the word going forth. And again, what's that message? What is that news? It's not advice on how to fix your problems in life. It's not advice on how to, how to fix yourself so that you're acceptable to God. It is a, it's a report, it's a declaration, it's news of who God is and what He's done to redeem your life. Listen to how Peter summarizes it. This is from Acts 10. Peter, in his proclamation, says... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is how the apostles bear witness to Jesus That is our message even to this day. Jesus Christ crucified, risen for the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. That's the message. That's our our mission. Now, does that mean that all the church does is talk? You know, if, if our mission is to bear witness, does that mean that the church is all word and no action? Uh, Not if you read the book of Acts. That's not what you'll find there. Uh, In fact, one of the most powerful testimonies of the church is the way that they love and sacrifice and care for one another. In the book, you you look at at Acts chapter 2, and there's this beautiful scene of of the church's community and how they've got everything in common, and they're they're sharing with one another, and they're 
uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then the conclusion of all of this life of the church is that, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's, it's, we bear witness to Jesus in word and deed through gospel proclamation and through loving sacrificial service. The two cannot be divorced. We must preach the word. You can't understand who Jesus is without somebody repeating that news. Nobody's going to say, wow, this family came and shoveled our driveway for us when we were snowed in last week. I'll bet Jesus Christ must be the Son of God who died for my sins and rose again. I mean, you're not going to make that connection without someone explaining it. But what a powerful testimony when we see the people of God laying down their lives because that's who Jesus is and that's what he did for us. And so we bear witness in word and deed. That is our mission. But that mission is impossible to carry out in our own strength. Notice again how after giving them the charge to bear witness, Jesus commands the apostles to stay put in Jerusalem for 10 days. You've got a job, but don't go do it yet. You need to wait because Jesus doesn't just send us, he also equips us for what he sends us to do. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. So that's the second uh, word there. The church's might, our strength, our power is the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The fact that the story of Jesus continues through the church doesn't mean that we don't still need his grace or that, you know, all right, Jesus, we've got it from here. That's, that's not how we go about doing this. As we're going to see later in the book, Jesus didn't pick the apostles for their natural ability or their leadership talent. He didn't hold auditions or go around looking for the best and the brightest. He chose ordinary uneducated men. Nor does he send us today because of the unique skills we bring to the table out of our natural abilities. That's, I mean, he gives us natural abilities. We should use them for the Lord. That's not why he sends us, though. It's not because of what we bring. He's the one who gives us the power. The purpose of the church is not a natural purpose. It's a supernatural purpose a supernatural mission, something that can only be accomplished by God. And so he promises the presence of his spirit to accomplish his work. And, and it's one of these ironic things. You'd think that Jesus, you know, if you still got work to do, wouldn't it be better if you just stuck around and did it? You know, why ascend to heaven? What, what, you know, why not stay here? Well, it's this amazing thing Jesus says in John 16, 7 that it's actually better for us that he go away. For if I do not go away, he says, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. The, the mission of the church, to be accomplished, we need the Spirit. And so it's actually better that Jesus ascend and give us the Holy Spirit for his work to continue. That's mind-blowing. That sounds like a design flaw to me, right? He would be so much better at doing what he does if he didn't use us. But that's his design. That's his mercy and his grace. That's his desire to use broken, 
flawed people who are empowered by His Spirit to do things we could never do by ourselves. That's His grace. And it's the Spirit's presence that equips and qualifies us for gospel witness. One author writes that when the Holy Spirit comes upon followers of Christ, the most unlikely people become fountains of power because God's the one doing the work. And, and like the proclamation of God's word that, that dominates the book, the power of the Holy Spirit also dominates this book. Luke goes out of his way to point out the Spirit's presence and activity uh, at every turn of the page. For just a few examples, Acts 4.8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now, he could have just said, Peter said to them. But he wants you to know that what Peter's about to say, that's the power of the Spirit. Uh, chapter 9, verse 31, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Presence of the Spirit. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The Holy Spirit is our might. It's his power. This, the church that we see in the book of Acts is a church on fire. It is burning with passion for God and fueled by his presence. And, and it's interesting that that presence of God is initially indicated by little tongues of fire above the heads of the apostles on Pentecost. We'll see that next week. But it's in the Spirit's power, not the church's power, themselves, in the Spirit's power that the gospel begins to spread across the known world. And that's the next point, the mission field. The church has a mission field, and what we see in verse 8 is that it's both local and global. Again, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So if you notice, if you think about that on a map. There's kind of a concentric structure to it. There's Jerusalem, where they're at right now, and then you go out regionally, and it's Judea and Samaria, and then it just keeps spreading to the end of the earth. That's God's design for the spread of his gospel. And in fact, that, that little concentric structure actually gives structure to the book of Acts itself. Like if you were, you can see the structure of the whole book in verse 8, because chapters 1 through 7 focus on the gospel spread in Jerusalem, and then persecution happens, and so it goes out to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 11, and then when you hit kind of the end of 11, beginning of 12, it begins to then spread to the end of the earth through, through chapter 28. But, but what's interesting, though, is that it takes another kind of fire to actually push the church to do their mission. Is they're given this commission in Jerusalem, and they don't actually leave there for a long time until the fires of persecution force them out. And uh, we'll, we'll see that as the story unfolds as well. But, but that's another key theme we'll see in the book of Acts, that just as the church is on fire in their witness, so they will face the fires of persecution from those who oppose them. They will be slandered, they will be opposed, they will be imprisoned, they will be killed. All in order to try and stop the spread of the gospel. 
But guess what? It doesn't stop. It can't stop because Christ is the one accomplishing his work in the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. In fact, the, the persecution, rather than, than quenching it, quite ironically, fuels its spread into new regions. Um, so we have a mission field. We have a mission field. And there is an urgency to that mission. That's the final M, our motivation. Our motivation. So moving on from verse 8, if you look at verses 9 through 11, after Jesus finished giving his charge, he ascends to heaven and the disciples kind of stand there, slack-jawed, looking up into heaven, watching him rise. Uh, which, again, I get it. It is not every day you see someone kind of taken up into heaven. I would be staring at that in wonder as well. But as they stand there staring, they're visited by two angels who say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. It's one more way of telling us the story is not over. It's still going on. As one author explains, Jesus may not be visibly present, but the plan moves on and the new community has a task to perform until he returns. The point here is really a command. Do not look up and merely be idle waiting for his return, but move out and share what God's program in Jesus is all about. There's an urgency to the church's mission. Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the point of that urgency is not to panic or freak out uh, or to puff ourselves up in pride because, you know, well, at least we're safe. The point is to be focused and passionate about the call we've received from God, about what God has sent us into the world to do. We have something so good, so satisfying, so life-changing so necessary, so eternally significant, how can we keep that to ourselves? Our motivation is not to win arguments or show people that we're right, but to share the love of God that we've received freely, not because we deserved it, but because Jesus is enough. A love that knows us deeply and intimately, yet accepts us for who we are. A love that gave everything on the cross so that we could be acceptable as we are. A love that's unwilling to leave us as we are, but changes us by God's grace and His Spirit. That's something to be passionate about sharing. Paul expresses it this way in chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I just want to bear witness to Christ. 
That's his passion. That's his motivation. Leslie Newbigin, who's a, a British missionary and pastor, uh, once wrote, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. And John, John Stott adds that we have no liberty to stop until both ends have been reached. We have work to do as a called people of God. The story of Jesus is not over. Not at the end of the Gospels and not today. Rather, Jesus continues his work on earth by commissioning his church to bear witness to him and his kingdom in the power of the Spirit among all nations. And for what it's worth, that means that the story of Westgate is not over either. Yes, we're entering into a season of transition, and that can be scary, but God is not scared by that. He's the one orchestrating it. And if he's orchestrating it, we can take confidence that God is at work. It need not scare us either. By God's grace, with fresh faith and a fresh dependence on his presence, his spirit, 2019 can be a banner year for gospel growth in the life of this church because Jesus is the one who runs it. Jesus and his presence are what make the difference. We can trust him with that. And so my prayer as we enter into this book uh, for the next few months is that, that we would lean into this calling as a church, uh, that God would give us a richer understanding of what we've been called to, what our purpose and mission is uh, through the book of Acts, that he'd give us a, a, a clarity and a passion as we move forward in outreach in the months ahead so that by his grace and the power of his spirit through our witness, Christ would be treasured above all things here in Metro West Boston and to the ends of the earth. That's the prayer. Let's pray. Lord, you are so sufficient. You are so sufficient. What, what looks and feels like a design flaw to me and probably to many of us actually works because you're the one who designed it, because you're the one who makes it work. Uh, we confess we would, not have, uh, we would not have placed the weight of the gospel's advance on our own shoulders. But Jesus, it's not really on our shoulders. It's on yours, on your spirit. And so, Lord, would you help us to see that, that the point here in this call is not how great we are or how good and strong and wise and, and talented and um, creative we can be. Your plan for the growth of your gospel has always been the presence of your spirit through the witness of your people. So Lord, may we be faithful to that. May we trust you to see you at work 
may you continue to lead us forward for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.